0: Well, you know we've been starting the last few episodes with me saying we're recording now so let me just keep going with this little you theme. might as well we're recording now <laughs> hey,
1: <laughs> hey it's been working it's been working so you yeah. might as well just stick with it
0: that's right you, you get a formula man you know they tell you just just wear it out
1: how you yeah, doing? well, we're we're so good at doing uh doing these bad Nothing. where we have to start <laughs> <That's> over <right. laughs> that you might as well just uh, do what works that's
0: right because everything you know i was like just a dumpster fire of a podcast here with the, <laughs> tec- with the technical
1: stuff <laughs> i know it really is every single time i come in here my settings are broken and we start over
0: <laughs> well you sound great now and we got it all sorted it sounds like and uh um, I don't know, man, it's been, uh, it's been interesting. I've been getting some feedback, which will maybe go in a little to a little bit later in the podcast about that led situation we talked about last night or last week, I guess. I, I, I guess I'm posting these on Wednesday folks. <laughs> that seems to be the day when I can get it together. And then on Saturday morning, I schedule it to go off on the deep astronomy YouTube channel. So that's our posting schedule, at least for now. Until it doesn't work anymore. Um, so Wednesdays for Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff, Google Podcasts, and Saturday for the YouTube version. A lot of people seem to like to uh, watch the video there. So that's our updated schedule. And so, well, what have you been up to since the last time we talked, Dustin?
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something that's gonna be a bunch of people message me. I know for sure they might even message you. Uh, I told you so, but I recently switched all my uh, astro-imaging software in all of my observatories to NINA. Have you seen NINA yet? No, I know nothing about it. NINA stands for something, Nighttime Imaging... I think the in is supposed to be like, and I think that's what it is. Like nighttime, nighttime imaging and in astronomy. Oh, like like D and D is D. Maybe in astronomy. Yeah. Yeah, Which would make a lot more sense. (laughs) Nighttime imaging in astronomy. But, um, yeah, I mean the, the program is insane. I mean, you've seen, you've seen my other programs. You've seen what I use with Mm -hmm. uh, the the full automation and basically I had to use a bunch of different programs together, um, where it was like CCD autopilot, CCD navigator. I was using the SkyX for control and uh, PhD for guiding and all this stuff. But Nina is a free download that has um, basically all of that stuff built in. It has telescope control, you know, guiding, you can connect directly to PhD if you want, um, you know, the planetarium software, everything. And people have been telling me for a really long time, there's this insane, innovative, um, you know, open source software, but downloading it has completely changed the way I've been imaging and man, it's, it's an incredible program. So for people that haven't tried it, it's definitely worth checking out. It's a free program. Um, and there's a bunch of free downloads and things you can upgrade for it, you know, but, um, it's been, it's been really incredible seeing, you know, what the community has built into it and all these new features for full automation. I mean, it's the type of thing you're like, click it to run and go to bed, man. How do you enter, uh, observing
0: programs? is it yeah. a text file is it a log what what do you do is it a text file uh, <laughs> yes text file well at least i didn't say no. you know paper mostly
1: smoke signals smoke signals <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> text
0: file i love you tony you're so yeah, yeah. old yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> no it's <laughs> it's uh it's yeah, funny because I mean, i'm so... old Everything's in there, so everything's in the program. It's not, that's not what I'm saying, man. How does it go there every time? You're always the one that says it. You uh, know, it's last time you're true, yeah. yeah. You're, you're saying you measure your age and proximity to Andromeda Galaxy. That's, right. that's right, that's right. you
0: doing that. That's not me. That's true, uh, Yeah, um, I can tell by the red shift, the blue shift of Andromeda, I can tell how old I am no.
1: <laughs> in billions of years. So So, yeah, I mean, it's a really simple program. I mean, you use your text in the search bar and type in, you know, like if you want to messier catalog, all the catalogs are built in. But what I really like about it is that you don't have to memorize the catalogs. You just type in like horse and it's going to find the horse head nebula and it'll pop it up. And as soon as it does, you can click on, you know, whatever it finds. And then basically it'll show your framing and everything. So, your sensor basically mapped out on the Horsehead nebula. You can rotate it to whatever framing you want. And then if you have a rotator, a field rotator on your system, it'll rotate to that when it plate solves and make sure it's exactly where you positioned it. And then you can set up all your filters, you know, all the different targets you want to shoot everything and run all night with it. You know, like I said, you'd set it up once and then run and it's done.
0: So does it, uh, what is it? USB connection, USB-C to the, um, what, how does it connect to your telescope? Well, I guess
1: Yeah. Yeah. From the computer directly too. So whichever you, whatever you have, you know, if your computer can push, uh, well, I guess it it comes from the mount, right? So like, well, my mount anyway. Um, So it all, everything ports into my mount and then there's one cable that runs to my computer, but I have my camera, my, um, you know, filter wheel, everything, basically all of the electronics on my system port into the hub that's in my mount. And then there's one cable running from my mount to my, uh, my laptop and the laptop runs the entire thing. So yeah, nice. it's just a single USB cable. So it's uh and it's open source, you say, this software. Yeah, yeah. Or you free. you definitely should May check it honest. out. Yeah. I mean, especially yeah. with your system. I mean, you should be doing some uh some imaging with that thing, especially like you could do planetary with it. Presumably. Yeah, I could.
0: I'm waiting for a more permanent um setup. I I don't I don't have like, you know, a garden of peers like you do in your backyard. I need to build something up, uh before I do that that can enclose it and I could just leave it set up. That's all I'm waiting on. But you're right,
1: I do want to. I do want to get
0: get some kind yeah, of control. Yeah, cool, man. Over. This
1: is this is exactly the right time to be an amateur astronomer. I mean, everything's just so good. You know, I saw a video a re- video review today of the um, the Sharp Star. Uh, well, I think it's actually Escar, but uh, same company producing these things and uh it's the 130 phq these are another thing i feel like you need to geek out on some of this hardware with me man i'm i'm like nerding out on I this. i can't stuff.
0: afford all that i mean i would love to but you know if you send me one to use and play with
1: i'll be happy to i don't, to. Buy, I don't <laughs> buy all of it for myself i just buy it and then sell it to other people to tell me how awesome it is <laughs> you know? no i
0: actually i am intrigued by these because these uh, astrographs all of them are astrographs of various kinds and some of them are real small they're just like you know they fit on the it's like a telephoto lens, some of these ASCAR uh, uh,
1: uh, astrographs. So there can be small some of them all the way smaller. up to 100. And, what's
0: their biggest one? 100 and
1: 108 right now, millimeters? The, for refractors, yeah, it's the 130. And that one, that one is my eye. I, yeah. I think I'm going to buy that one. I've been trying to talk myself into it. Um, really, I've been trying to talk myself out of it, if I'm being honest. Uh, but I know I'm going to do it. I'm going to buy Justin, it. You need it, man. And you know you do. Yeah. I know I do. And the reason is it's unique. It's it's an F7.7. Most refractors are going the other way right now, which mm-hmm. I think is awesome. And honestly, there's a there's a ton of benefits to speed in a refractor. We've had this conversation many times. But for imaging, you really want that speed. You don't want to have your exposure times have to be you know, extremely long, especially if you're in areas where you don't get a ton of clear skies, which is basically most of the, most of the country, most of the populated areas of the country. Yeah. And, um, if that's the case, you know, you don't want to have to do 15 or 30 minute exposures with really slow optics because you just don't have the time for it. You don't have the clear skies for it. You know, so that's why things like the Celestron Rasa are so popular at F 2.2, you're doing, you know, five second, 30 second exposure, stuff like that. Whereas right. at F8, you know, you're going to be pushing 10 minute exposures or more for each exposure. Um, and it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot of time to invest if you don't have the time. But the benefit is that you get really, really sharp images and you don't have a lot of the issues. Things aren't exaggerated as much. Like you don't see t- uh, sensor tilt as much. You don't, you have more wiggle room on your focus and things of that sort. Everything's not quite so critical. So you can end up with what becomes a much sharper image at those, uh, F ratios.
0: Well, as I was looking into these, cause I, I've been looking at your website and, and, and geeking out in my own little private way, uh, on it. And, uh, that's all I'll say, but, um, no, I was looking at these, these astrographs and they are quite interesting because, um, but I have two questions. One of them, the, uh, they, some of they, they all, I think have an accessory. You could buy a, a focal reducer with for them have you tried that and is it does it ruin it because i think you can go down to f3.6 with these uh with the focal reducer on it
1: yeah with a lot of them you can and that's a that's a fast refractor that's, yeah
0: <laughs> that's a, yeah but is it any good that's my question i mean yeah it's fast but what do you is it is it like rainbows at the edge of field of view or what do you have there right
1: i mean it's that's a really that's a really good point and yes you're going to be better you're like generally speaking you're going to be sharper um, and you're going to have better color correction. And I've actually seen this on the the PHQ one thirty that we're talking about. This thing's thousand millimeters native at f7.7, but then they have a focal reducer that brings it down from there. Yeah. Um, but people have said, I have seen complaints, and I haven't tried this myself. So, and it could have been a bad copy of the reducer. Uh, you know, you never know. But he was saying that um there was some chromatic aberration in the red channel with um the focal reducer, and that's exactly the the compl- the complaint you see with other ones that have been added, too. If it's not perfectly tuned, you can get into a lot of problems by adding optics after what is the original rear element, you know? Yeah. But they can also help a lot, too. Like, if you have a scope that doesn't have a flattener, it's important if you're going to be imaging, right?
0: Yeah, but I have never seen – I mean, I've used Celestron's. This is back in the day. I used Celestron's uh, focal reducer. It took a C8 down to F. I don't forget what it was. I cut it in half. It was like a half focal reducer on it. And Mm. uh, I've never liked the results, uh, visually anyway, uh, of putting a focal reducer on a telescope. Um, And I just was curious about this because, as you say, this is a a pretty long focal length. And this sort of the other way people are going. And I like the idea of a focal reducer. I just have never seen it implemented in a way that's been satisfactory. And I just wanted to know if you had had an experience with this particular one.
1: Yeah, I mean it's the it's tough. You know, there's there's a reason that most scopes are fast. Most people prefer fast scopes. I'm kind of like right now I'm I'm looking for I want that focal length. I really I've been on a kick where I want to I'm not looking to get the images as fast. I just want to spend the time getting them as sharp as I possibly can. And so most lenses like if you go buy a lens and it's an f1.4 to f 22 you're generally going to find it's not sharpest at 1.4 and it's not sharpest at f22 it's sharpest somewhere between f5 and you know f11 generally like Mm -hmm. f8 ish yeah and so it's it's no different it's just much easier to focus the light when things aren't so extreme uh, when you don't have this super steep cone coming out of the back, you're trying to focus at like hypercritical areas where sensor tilt is going to be extremely obvious. Yeah. And then everything else is magnified. Like all the issues with even filters, filters become hard to use, you know, beyond F 2.8. You can't even use three nanometer filters because they shift. And so they'll shift out of band. So you have to literally buy pre-shifted filters or you should, you know, we sell like the, the triad that way pre-shifted for super fast telescopes so that it doesn't shift out of bandpass because everything becomes more complicated when you get too fast. So generally that F3, you know, 3.8, like you mentioned to F7, those are really safe territories that those areas, because they've been done so much have been pretty perfected. I didn't realize that. So with the
0: triad filter, you had to pre uh, shift as you called it, but you just got to kind of know what's going to happen with the wavelengths at these shorter focal lengths.
1: Yeah, if it like let's yeah. say it's hydrogen. If you're looking for specific specifically hydrogen, when it comes in and uh you know at that steep an angle through the refraction, it's going to miss hydrogen because you're talking about three nanometers. You don't have very much room there. There's not much wiggle room. And yeah. so if you even if you shift, let's say, you know, slightly, you know, four, you missed. And so you're not gonna see. Uh, what you were after with you're going to get only a very small percentage of the hydrogen that you were after instead of getting, you know, all of the hydrogen coming through the band pass that you have open. And so what we do instead is we shift the opening to where we know the hydrogen will be, right? Like we or where we shift the filter to where it's actually going to be on the hydrogen, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, dude, that just really brings home the the
0: the achievement you've made with the with the triad filter to begin with. You said it was hard, but you know it really is. I mean, this is not an easy problem to solve. So that's impressive. The, the that triad, the yeah. triad
1: was, was a pain, man. <laughs> that was a keeps your butt, man. <laughs> yeah, the, the triad was a pain, but it's a testament to the team. They just stuck yeah, with it, and you know the triad that that everybody's buying now is not the original triad. The original triad was the triad, the one that everybody buys. It now.
0: three-way, but now you've got four, I think, right? It's really a yeah, quad. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that is sounds there- weird. A, a quad, right? It really is. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was not an easy thing to develop and we <clears throat> messed up a lot. I mean, we threw a lot of filters away trying to make that thing. So it was not a cheap sure. development, but once it was out, it was a game changer. And that's why people <laughs> wanted it for things like the Rasa. I mean, imagine that thing on an F2 11 inch scope. You know, it's just, mm. it's nuts. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, that was, okay. So that was my first question about these astrographs was the, the, the field. I wanted to know about if you had used the focal reducer that's available as an accessory. It doesn't, it doesn't come with it. But the second question I have about these things is these are basically APOs with a field flattener stuck inside. And, and is it really that difficult. I mean, and the main advantage to having it in the optical train, right? Forward of the focuser is so you don't have to deal with this thing called back focus, which is just a pre-focus setting. You have to know if you put your fuel flattener on the other side of the focuser. And so my question is, is it really that much better to have it already installed in the optical tube than it is to just get your own Apo and put a fuel flattener on the other end? Most of us are pretty good at figuring out what the optics mm-hmm. need to perform so if a back focus is not that onerous i don't think
1: no no what's it's your not, thoughts well it's not fun it's not fun to calculate you know um I'll speak for yourself all- man i do it
0: <laughs> I, i'm doing it right now i'm calculating back focus
1: i, I figured you were <laughs> um but but yeah it's not that bad i agree with you and i mean we've done it so many times now that it's just one of those things that you know you don't think about very much anymore but um It's really about eliminating variables in your imaging system. It's not that you can't get great results because a lot of the best images ever taken have been with people that bought triplets, right? So APO Mm -hmm. triplets, three elements, and then bought flatteners or flattener reducers to either speed it up, you know, get a wider field of view or just to flatten the scope at its, um, you know, native focal length. But I think that um, it's, it's not that you just get... Um, you know, the the larger image circle and all the things that come with not having a second set of elements there, you don't have anything moving. And so if, with everything being in the tube, like take the, the Radiant 75, you know, we just released it. And for the first time ever, actually have scopes in stock so by the time we air this i'm pretty sure that won't be the case so don't be mad at me if
0: um, <laughs> how many do yeah, you have <laughs> they'll all be gone it, right it's not
1: it's not enough that i probably should have said that but yeah. we do have them in stock at the time that i'm saying this this is true um and it's something that for the Radiant scopes has not been something we've been able to do very often because they sell they sell very quickly um but yeah, so with the Radian 75, you know, we changed that. The Radian 61 was exactly what you're talking about. We had a flattener reducer, but we included it in the scope, so but it still sat after the focuser. So that element moves back and forth when the focuser moves. But you know, collimation is extremely important. You want to make sure that everything is at the perfect distance, all the elements are at the perfect distance apart, and that nothing shifts. I mean, even sag of the focuser. If the reducer is after the focuser and then there's any sag, obviously the angles have changed, right? That's not you something mean the flattener. you want. Yeah, yeah, the flattener. I don't know okay. what I said. Reducer, you said flattener. The reducer. You said the reducer. Yeah, well, for us, it is a. It, they're the same thing. It's a reducer, flattener. So oh, I um, see. Just okay. one unit that does both. Um But when it's all inside the tube before the focuser, nothing ever moves. You never worry about collimation. You never worry about, you know, sag in the image train or any of that stuff. It's just always there. So it's not just that you don't have to calculate back focus because now you have all of the travel of the focuser, wherever it comes to focus is your focal point. That is perfect focus. But you also don't have any other variables that can cause problems. If you can eliminate all those variables, there's absolutely nothing wrong With having a flattener or a reducer or whatever, I mean those. There's there's so much great glass. I mean, look at Takahashi. You know, look at Teleview, Look at so many different brands. They're producing phenomenal, phenomenal glass. Um, But if I can use something native without it, I'm going to. If I can get an astrograph that already has it included in the tube. In fact, one of the I just posted a Pleiades image, and it was shot with the Teleview 127 IS, and that's one of my favorite scopes of all time. I mean, that scope is my baby, and and, you know, that's one, of it's a Petsful. It's got the flattener reducer built into it. So there's nothing moving past the focuser. Okay. You sold me on that because it doesn't,
0: <clears throat> it doesn't matter how good a focuser you have. There's still going to be some flexure in it. There's still going to be some play in it that would be sensitive if you put the uh, flattener in after the fact so that's to me it was like i'm, I'm having a hard time knowing why can't i just buy an apple an and put a flattener wherever i want and you've just basically made the case because they are apparently quite sensitive to alignment and if that's true then <laughs> you know the the focus is going to screw you up every time yeah
1: i don't care how Yeah. Good it, it, the um, but again, if you have a scope that needs it, it's better to have it than to just run without it. I'm not saying if you have a triplet and you're going to be doing imaging, don't just run it without your flattener. Use your flattener, use your flattener reduce. You're going to get much, much better results having that than running a triplet without it, um, and expecting to have a flat filled image.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: All right, then. Well, these, these, tel-
0: uh, these astrographs are. They have a pretty wide range of sizes, uh, and and price points too. I mean, I think their cheapest ones only a few hundred bucks, right? But that's pretty small, uh, and that's also only got a, a one element. If I'm correct me if I'm wrong, it's got a one element flattener in it instead of a two element flattener like the rest do. You talking
1: um, about like the TPO one hundred and eighty?
0: Yeah, the real small ones. I don't have it in front of me now. I don't have. Your yeah, they're up, they're but, tiny.
1: They're an f four point five. <laughs> Um, they're tiny scopes, um, again, manufactured by a scar and, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, they're, but they're
0: affordable they're, and they're a good way to get
1: into. Yeah? yeah. They're, they're Atmos scopes, and people are taking, people have taken multiple apods with those things, but yes, they are small. The thing can fit in your pocket. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, Literally. That's what I, I wouldn't mind. One of them. I like, I like things that are,
0: that are easy to use and cheap. So, and yeah. good and quality. So that would be something I'd be interested in, but they only have four elements instead of five. Um, like the bigger ones do. The it just doesn't yellow- need it.
1: It doesn't yeah. need it for, for what it is, as wide field as it is. And it's, um, you know, it's what it's meant to do is just tear down like really big chunks of sky. You use yeah. that when you, you want to use like camera lens focal length, not really, you know, telescope focal length um, so that you can see all of Cygnus, you know, <laughs> yeah. or something like that, where you can get these big chunks of sky. Um, and that's what people are doing. They're stitching together, you know, entire constellation images with these really small telescopes that you can pull the focal length way back on. But when the focal length is pulled that far back, a lot of the issues that come up with imaging, you don't really have because you don't have the magnification. That's right. Yeah. We talked about that a long time Magnification is about hard. My, yeah. Wide field
0: of views uh, are really quite forgiving. <laughs> so so you could get away with a lot. You get bad tracking. Uh, you don't need any tracking in some cases if you just do a few second or maybe you have but it's about a couple minutes. You don't really need much tracking if you're just doing really super wide field stuff. So um,
1: yeah, you get away with a lot. Bray uh, Bray Falls took an image recently. So Astro Falls on all the social channels. He took an image recently untracked that was mind blowing, you know? And so like people are are definitely pushing the boundaries even with that, even with just taking really, really short exposures and then combining them all together in the software. So AstroGraphs seem to be coming of age
0: now um i've never talked so much about them ever because usually they just weren't available or at least you had to do it you know where adding your own fuel flattener to the end of an apo but sounds like they're coming what why is that is it just because uh manufacturing techniques have gotten such and glass quality has gotten such that you can do these at a at
1: scale how come Well, the you know we, we say this every every podcast, but the quality of the equipment that's out now. I mean, even people that were doing the hobby ten years ago, if they came back to the hobby now, they they'd look at it and they'd just be like, "This is a different hobby. The yeah. equipment is just so much better. It's not even comparable."
0: Yeah, but why? Um, why do you think that is? Is it because of just? I mean, we just know more. We got better. We got better glass manufacturing techniques.
1: We can make a. We can make a high quality lens. The hobby has grown for one thing, which supports innovation. If you have a lot of people doing it, then the businesses get supported. They have, you know, the financial support to go out and innovate because innovation costs money. It, co- You know, it costs money to go out and make the triad filter. You can't just yeah. do it on a whim, you have to have a support structure somewhere else that can bring, you know, at least the capital in that you can try to take some risk and innovate. And all of the most innovative companies are doing that. They're spending money to go out there and push the boundaries. But, um, you know, that's happening not just by telescope companies, but, you know, the cameras are the thing that have, I think have taken the biggest leap. The cameras are just so unbelievably good anymore that, you know, it's like a cheat code, man. It's like, <laughs> you've got this insane 60 megapixel camera that just captures any and everything you pointed at in such high resolution detail just you know and then the the ai software packages like russell croman released uh recently something called blur exterminator um i mean that's completely changed the game for everyone but it's just all these things happening it at once and i think it's because the hobby in general has grown and i i was saying this when we first bought opt i um I was talking to some of the manufacturers about visual, you know, same conversation you and I have had about visual versus, which was always the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, astrophotography. And I thought, still, you know, by the it,
0: way, that's still our most listened to podcast episode. Maybe it's, it's a really it interesting
1: question because if you love this stuff, you love both. It's yeah. hard not to love both. You know, how can you love looking at the night sky, but not love looking at the night sky? <laughs> so. <laughs> that's just different so ways, so you, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're going to love both. Um, but. I always thought, and it's, it's happening now that astrophotography would win out for the mass market. I say mass market in quotes, right? But, um, because this is hard astro imaging, there's a learning curve at least. But, um, the reason is because it's a shareable experience. It's a more shareable experience. Like if we go out and we look through telescopes together, I can tell you what I saw and I can go the next day and I can tell the people I see what I saw, but I have to describe it. And the best view they get is what I can describe. If we go out and we take photos, we can show exactly what we saw to everybody with evergreen content that we post online. And now everybody's seeing it even when we're sleeping. Yeah. you know, And that's why it builds communities. That's why um, it's, become, it's gotten so much traction. And it's, it's grown the hobby exp- exponentially because it's a shareable experience with evergreen content. So two things converge then, it
0: sounds like, to make these telescopes and to make the the hobby as, as good as it is. One is social media has allowed everybody to share their experience with everybody more easily uh, than ever before. Before you had to like watch a few imagers in Sky and Telescope magazine or something or Astronomy magazine and get there and, and kind of live vicariously through them. Now anybody can share with anybody else. So that's one thing, Another, which has grown the hobby. And another is that once they decide, oh, that's kind of cool. I see maybe uh, Bray Falls' uh, images on Instagram. They could go, oh, I, I think I'd like to try to do that. That barrier to entry is so low now, they can go buy a halfway decent telescope for under $1,000 to do reasonable results that happens to be good enough. They may not be excellent, but they're good enough that, allow, that hook them so that they want to do more. They want to learn more about it. They want to get better. They want to get better equipment over time, and that ends up. Uh, being more, uh, grows the market for telescopes, for sure, which, as you point out, all of this combined then lends itself to innovation. So a company like OPT can can spend some money on development on a, on a radiant filter or a, a new APO that they're in, introducing. Uh, and even, you know, a companies like Teleview and all these other places, they can also uh, innovate and and I would say another component that we didn't mention is materials. Material science has probably has made so many advances, not just in optics, but in just about everything. You've got carbon fiber um, mm-hmm. uh, tripods now and, and a lot of Kevlar stuff that when that was, that was developed. And so a lot of material science has also carbon kept fiber, pace with optics.
1: Yeah. Carbon fiber especially has become, you know, not only um, available enough, but inexpensive enough to use for things that otherwise you never would have, like tripods. Before, yeah. you know, it would have been so expensive you never would have considered it. It had to be in something like a like like an airplane or something really expensive sure. that you no, you know you right. really needed it. But now it's like, yeah, let's throw it in a tripod. Why not? It's cheap enough or, we can do it. They're making optical tube
0: assemblies out of with with right? uh with uh carbon fiber tubes. So
1: which is really great because it's thermally stable, right? Yeah. So way better than right. metal. Yes, yeah, so you don't have to worry about the, the shrinking, you know, the contraction and expansion of the tube as much overnight, especially for open tube systems. It's a little bit different. I don't really recommend it as much with the refractor, although it's not going to hurt anything. It's just close to system, closed tube systems don't really get the benefit of it because it's harder to reach ambient temperature when the air is trapped on the inside of a thermally stable device.
0: Oh, I didn't right? think of that. I, had, I used one of those. What, what was it? Stellar View? was a four inch refractor they they make carbon fiber tubes that was pretty nice i don't remember that but but it's possible i I see what you're saying though it's if it's already if it's not you know there's not a lot of tube currents going on already then it's going to take longer i think is that what you're saying yeah well i mean yeah i was
1: in an event and i heard Vic Vic maris is the owner of stellar view and i heard him tell people that we're asking that specific question why do you use carbon fiber tubes and he said because they're sexy that's it. Like it's not because it gives you any advantage. It's just well, they're it looks, lightweight. They're lighter. I'm
0: sorry. They're much lighter than a metal tube.
1: I mean, how heavy is, how heavy is your four inch refractor? Wouldn't oh, you I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. Not, not a lot. Right? Yeah. It's not, yeah. it's not a hundred pound difference. And no. so um, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not going to be the difference <laughs> in whether or not you're going to carry it around. So, um, yeah. I mean, it's there, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's happened, but I, I really do think it all comes back to that positive feedback loop that's been developed or, or, you know, maybe a flywheel is a better example. Like, you know, you've got more people doing the hobby and more people means there's going to be more photos, more photos means there's going to be more exposure right? And then more people seeing it means more people are going to want to do it. So then they go out and buy things and support manufacturers. Those manufacturers now have more money, so they're doing more innovation. The hobby becomes simpler. And so more people start doing it, right? And it's just this loop that goes over and over and over again, and it just feeds innovation. And ultimately, innovation is the thing that's going to keep driving this. Like you have to keep innovating and seeing how far can we push the boundaries because this is brand new, Astro imaging is brand new. You know, we forget that because there's so we see it like we're we're in it all day, every day, but this stuff is like, especially at the the hobbyist level, this is stuff that's been happening only in the generations alive lifetime.
0: You know? Yeah. I suppose yeah, I suppose you're right. I mean, it has, it isn't old as a as an activity, but it is old on that level, I suppose. Or it's new on that level, I mean, I suppose you're right. Yeah. Well, interesting times
1: man interesting times it's amazing yeah amazing. it never gets old and uh you know it can't it can't get enough of it everybody i know that's into it says the same thing you can't get enough of it yeah and so that's well, how you end up with you know 22 peers in your backyard and yeah that sort of thing oh, that's is that what you're telling yourself <laughs> I should you tell know, are you myself to justify
0: those. Are you trying to tell? Justify yeah, them? <laughs> I, I spend
1: a lot of time justifying it to myself and everyone around me. But yeah, we're going to need some picks soon. I need. I, I don't know when I'm going to get up there. I
0: need to do it quickly. But uh, I want to see this thing, man. So, how, what's give us an update? What's the latest on the on the construction?
1: So there's there's two observatories. Each has eleven piers, um, and then there's you know one uh, big Dobsonian one outside that's specifically for visual that I use to show like the local kids and, and even, you know, the parents and teachers and everything like that around, they'll, they'll come out in groups. And most people, I mean, really, honestly, I, I think this is a true statement. Most people have never seen the night sky through a telescope, just in general. That's most true. People have not. And, um, so getting them out and looking for the first time, even if it's nothing more than the moon, I mean, it's, um, it, it can be life-changing for people. And every, I've seen people, so many people step up to the eyepiece and start crying when they see, you know, the moon or they see Saturn. And, um, so that one, that, that area specifically for that, but the rest of them are peers that either I use or my friends use here locally. Um, and then the other one is I'm setting up, I'm going to do some stuff with the university that's going to actually be using the peers. Um, and then, you know, I've got people that have asked me if they could, you know, like, set their own stuff up on peers. People have messaged me on Instagram and things like that. So working out some stuff there, but just trying to, I mean, I'm just trying to make it more accessible, you know? Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. You've always done that. Uh, Since I've known you, you've always
0: made things that you've been setting up as available to as many people as possible. So that's really cool. Well, keep us posted, man, because that's exciting. I like you're going to have, a pretty killer setup. By the time
1: all this is done, so <laughs> what kind of yep. is it going to have domes? By
0: the way, yeah, I don't think I. No, I no, remember. they're both
1: they're both roll off roofs. They're um, okay. sixteen by thirty buildings. So they're, they're, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big roof that you see moving. It's it's kind of it's kind of scary when you're on the inside of it, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're, they're big buildings and there's a lot of scopes in there, but I'll definitely send you some pictures and maybe we can even post some pictures into the next one for context here. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, yeah, the original idea. I can always idea, do it on the video. So I don't think we've ever talked about it, but the original idea was I was trying to give one of these away. I wasn't trying to build them on my property. I was trying to build them in a local city um, that's never had access to telescopes. So I was going to build it for the city, but it got kind of hung up with a lot of, um, you know, there, there's, there's red tape. And um yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And so in working out the details, it was just taking a very long time. So and they didn't really understand what it was, like what is this what is this observatory going to look like? How do they work? What what all is needed? All those questions. So I said I'm just gonna build one and then I can show everybody locally, and then ultimately the hope is that you know, we could create. And, and if somebody else can do this faster, please do. This is not an idea I want to keep. It's not important that I do it. I just want it done. So I will do it if I have to. <laughs> but but I, you know, I'd be just as happy if someone else just ran with it. I, what I'd like to do is see telescope parks start opening up, like public telescope parks that just have availability of powered pads where people can come out and use telescopes and, and share the nice sky, right? But it's so inexpensive to put up a building for a city for a city to do that. It's not very expensive. So they can just isolate some land, put that up. And even a small building, because it's so inexpensive now to get uh, an imaging system going, you could even like live cast that image, whatever it's imaging, the moon, whatever, right to the outside of the building. Um, So the hope is that eventually something like that can happen. And um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to test it here with Ian and, uh, tagback tv and a few others and you know scott scott roberts from explore scientific you know he's always involved in anything we're trying to do like that too yeah yeah scott's uh, great yeah he came down and saw the area but um, yeah the idea is just like how do we get this stuff more available and have more people have access to it because the other side of it is kids don't know that this stuff exists and this is a major major career path for people i just saw one of the news stations said that in 2030 it's going to be like one of the top um top industries for hiring high paying jobs in the world is going to be, uh, space and space technology, you know, with all the things changing with space domain awareness and obviously rocket launches are happening like every five seconds now. And so, uh, I can speak from personal experience on the astronomy part.
0: It has been a, a, an employee's market, uh, since the 19, early 19, early 1990s, uh, there's always jobs that go unfilled in observatories and at universities, uh, particularly in the realm of non-PhD level jobs. So, uh, right. If you could, yeah, exactly. if you can program things, or if you can build things, uh, whether you, you know they call them software engineers—that's what I was. And, but there's also you, mechanical engineers and and electronics engineers, computer engineers. All of this stuff is always. Uh, you look at the Double job reg- register, and you can see what I'm talking about. There's always jobs that have been there for a long time, unfilled. It has, it has been a very strong job market. I've been preaching this for at least 20 years um, about getting in a job at astronomy. You don't need a PhD to do it. And increasingly, and this is something I've, I've, I've been adding to my message, is that increasingly you don't need a bachelor's degree to do it either. If you have demonstrated skills in the areas that they're looking for and they're, and they're finally starting to open their minds, science and academia are the worst at this. They really believe in degrees and job titles and, and that kind of thing hard but they're starting to peer a little bit under the 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 curtain a little bit and looking at what skills people actually have whether or not they uh they have the degree or not i'll just tell you a real quick story this happened at the space telescope science institute right before i left it was a kid just a brilliant guy with with computers and, and uh he had he he uh he came up to me and he wanted to know what he could do to, you know, get a, get a job in, in doing work with the, what the astronomers in the building were doing. And I told him one thing I said, dude, learn some Python, learn Python, write some code, help the astronomers debug their own code. And, um, and even offer to help write it. And he got a job as a, uh, as at a, in a position as RIA, they called him research. Uh, I forgot what the I is something uh, assistant. Anyway, they were, uh, this, this was a degreed job but that he got, he required a bachelor's degree, but he got it without one because he was able to demonstrate his skill level now. And that is becoming more common. This is at Space Telescope Science Institute, a very academia-oriented place. Uh, so to, to say that's pretty remarkable. And I think universities will be the last one to jump on this bandwagon, but they will. So um, if you're wanting to get a job in astronomy, it is, it's been a be- the best time for that in, for, in 20 years, and it's not going away
1: no it's um, it's going to be increasingly so, so. the and, um go
0: ahead and i'm just gonna say and that doesn't even include the stuff you were talking about with with space science and aerospace uh, jobs at spacex or uh, aerojet Rocketdyne. all these companies are coming on board now wanting to build their own rockets and satellites they need engineers and and they are private companies who are a little more open to looking at what you can do versus what you can you know what what education and degrees you've got. So some Even think about.
1: things as simple as telescope operators, telescope installers. This stuff is going to be it's yeah. going to be needed and it's going to be needed in uh, mass. There's, there's mm-hmm. going to be a lot of it. Right? So um, I think it's it's a really good time for people that love this stuff. But the problem is we don't have enough people that know about it that I think the people would fall in love with it and many do. But you have to be exposed to it at some point first, and there there are jobs beyond that too. I mean, look at Kat Machen; she created um, an incredible career from just painting space. Um, Ian Ian Lauer he did same thing; just jumped in, made a print store, and has done that. You know, he left that and did that full time. So as Bray falls, all all Bray does, he quit his job, and all he just posted a YouTube video about his. Uh, process, but he went and got an aerospace degree, joined, um, an aerospace company left. And now all he does is take photos and, and, um, uh, you know, sell prints and do basically telescope work. And, uh, you know, he's, he's much happier now and making more than he was with his degree. So I agree. There's going to be a ton of opportunity. And it seems to be that the more specific a job requirement, the less that, um, degrees in many cases not all cases obviously there's some that this doesn't apply at all that what's really needed is the skill set to do it and the experience doing it more than the credential like if you're if you're the telescope operator and they really need somebody that can run it it's not as important that you have that degree that says it. it's like well, how, show us, show us everything, you know, can you be the guy that knows everything about this, that can keep this from having problems and all of that. And you see that and these jobs, you get open paid
0: accordingly because that becomes quite valuable. Uh, these, these, these telescopes can't be down. And, you know, if they're down, then, then, then observing time gets lost and it at the two, to the tune of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of observing time. So these things have got to be up. And, and I'm not saying that it's a high stress job because it isn't. Compared to other things, but these things are appreciated. If you keep that telescope running smoothly, then you're going to be paid accordingly. And um, but and you you also bring up a really good point about specialization. I consider myself a software engineer, but I can't write anything but code related to astronomy calibration and uh, and processing uh, and telescope control. <laughs> I you asked me to write an app for a phone, and I can't do it. Like, that's not where I'm at. I'm I can I have a very specific skill set in uh-huh. software and I understand what telescopes need. I understand what, uh, what, uh, you know, data management you have to do for these large cameras and what you got to do to read them out and all of that kind of stuff. But that, that's very specialized. Luckily I have never, uh, struggled to find a job, <laughs> uh, using those skills as, as
1: specialized as they were. Yeah, you wouldn't. I mean, obviously you don't need that now because it's, you do this and, and everything mm-hmm. that you do, um, with space education and, and all of the Tony Darnell things, <laughs> Um, that keeps you so busy, but <laughs> I think that, you know, it, it just shows that, you know, the specialization is very, very valuable for one thing, but it also becoming the expert in anything is generally a good idea. And so if you're good, if you know that it's a good idea to become an expert, you might as well become an expert in something that you love. And, and it can you, be monetized. But- yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like whatever you way. become the expert in, it's like you might as well become the expert in the thing you obsess over anyway, mm-hmm. uh because it's just for one it's just a, a frictionless path. It's something you want to be involved in and it's going to be a lot easier to become that. But uh also it's like it's authentic. When you start doing the job, it doesn't feel as much like oh, I have to go do this as much as like oh, this is exciting. Look at look at all the things we're doing. And yeah. so, you know, I know it's like super, super cliche, the whole, like, you'll never work a day in your life. And I don't think that's true. <laughs> um, but it is oh, true that you enjoy
0: all- it so much. You mean, and it's not really work. Yeah. That you're, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's cool. I do
1: think it's true though, that on average, your days are going to be much, much better than they would be if you became an expert just because you were like, Oh, well, this is an open door. It's like, well, you got to become that either way. So you might as well become the thing that you love. Yeah. 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 Malcolm it Gladwell, who space. wrote that. You should be that- space. I'm just going to say that. It's been what? I said it should be space. I'm yeah, just going to say should. that
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. for <forever. laughs> No bias or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell. He's the guy that coined the term tipping point, and he he says it takes ten thousand hours um, to become an expert in something, um, and uh, that seems about right to me. But it's worth it, and we live in a time when sharing it and other people uh, and being able to monetize it are also just as what, in the same way we were talking about amateur astronomy. I mean, it doesn't get more specialized than taking images of the night sky. That's pretty specialized activity to become an expert at that. You get a lot of people looking over your shoulder and what you're doing and loving it. Um, I re- I, re- I remember being mesmerized on Twitch, watching a, a guy repair watches, um, on I uh, just mm-hmm. that's all he did was just repair watches watching an expert do what they're good at is enthralling in my opinion so i mean it's just it's, there's lots of ways to, sh- to share
1: that stuff um but, yeah um, yeah yeah watching well, listen, an expert but- express their passion about anything anything is fascinating you yeah. know and so um you know i i totally agree
0: yeah watching a guy talk about monarch butterflies uh, on tell on the television i was watching a show about monarch butterflies and, and the guy all he somewhere in the Midwest and all he does is chart their, their migratory path. The guy was nuts for Mon, for uh, Monarch butterflies, but it was cool. I mean, I was like listening to him. He knew a lot about these, about these butterflies. And, and I just don't think there's an area to, I mean, I don't know, maybe thumbtacks aren't very interesting. But, you know, I I'm trying to figure out an area where what, you could be an expert on something and it'd be kind I of I bet boring. if
1: somebody knew everything there is to know about them and started breaking it down, I'd be glued to the screen like that.
0: Maybe, maybe. I can't imagine why I would, but maybe yeah. it would. I would. Mean, you know, you know I, uh, I
1: had a, I had a, a I've told you, I, I believe I told you the story, but a life-changing moment in Italy um, in a tiny, tiny wine shop in a town called Grave that um, is in Tuscany. It's really, really small But um, there's this little wine shop there. And I walked in and the guy was obsessed. When I say obsessed, I mean, he lived for wine, like absolutely lived for it. And um, when we walked in, he started telling us about it. And and I asked a really simple question. I was like, hey, you know, I don't really know much about wine because I I know nothing about wine. But um, what should we try? What's good here? What should I buy? And he went into this spiel. He started telling me, it started with, he's like, Let's start with two thousand and fourteen. Let me tell you about the <laughs> summer. He's like, "You wouldn't believe the rains that came down on these grapes in 2014 and And he's just like the way he talked about it, I was just like, "Oh my God, man, I don't talk about anything in my life that way." And that yeah. was this was before you know before tell before I was into telescopes and um, astronomy, but it was one of the things it was probably the catalyst that changed the direction, you know, because I left the career I had before. And just was like, oh, telescopes, what I do now. That's it. (laughs) I'm going to be the guy that talks about grapes that way. Like I'm going to find those things and and talk about them that way, you know. And uh, it's awesome because when you hear somebody talk with that much passion about anything, it's just, you know, you can see that people get consumed with something with just like this love and passion for it. And uh, there's nothing about it that can be negative. I had an experience very similar
0: to that at Glen Goyne, which is a
1: Scotch distillery right
0: outside of Glasgow. And the guy was like that, you know, talking about it's water, you know, the water source and and everything else. And it was like, uh, he was that way about Scotch. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. It just, um, I I guess the point here folks is, you know, don't be afraid. Just, you know, if something interests you, no matter how arcane get into it, dive in, man. I mean, I I don't see that being a a risk, you know, at some point you're going to be it's, it's going to pay off, all these things, too, as long as you care about it, as long as it matters to you. And
1: put it on Twitch, and Tony and I will uh, will stare at you like fixing watches. watch you. <laughs> yeah
0: dude it was really I mean I spent I know exactly I what you're it. talking I was about watching it an hour but the guy was working on a watch and and it was Oh just- I spent at
1: least an hour probably yeah probably more just like staring at that that guy fixing watches all close up too it's like he's zoomed in on the <laughs> yeah. on the watch and talking about all the different little gears yeah it's it's incredible yeah it's amazing stuff so I watched the donut shop operator for over an hour you know (laughs) right yeah it's like it was after it was back when I was doing a lot of twitch streaming afterwards I flipped through and somebody in the the chat was like hey we should go watch I don't remember what it was donut express or something like that yeah and so I went over there just to see what it was I'm like I'm not gonna watch a donut shop and I got over there and this guy's like talking to the camera and he's making donuts you know (laughs) and I was just like this is incredible
0: Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's a weird world we live in, but we really get to look at other people in ways <laughs> we never did, we never could before. That's a good and a bad thing, I suppose. But um, yeah, well, listen, we only have a few minutes left. I think we we're, we're I, before we get too far along, I got to talk a little bit about the AAS this week. Uh, the American Astronomical Society every January has their meeting, and I just wanna I just wanna talk about two things that came. That I I mean there's so much that goes out and I'm sure people like Frazier and Anton those guys will tell you all about the papers that came out this week but this is a big week for astronomy and I just want to acknowledge that there are a lot of stories came out this week that were very interesting but the one that caught that's relevant to I think us was we were talking last week about LED streetlights and we mentioned briefly the problem with Starlink satellites now Starlink uh, is this is, is owned by SpaceX they're gonna have they've got thousands I think it's over Was it like 3000 satellites, something like that in orbit right now? I have a Starlink um, myself, uh, but the problem is they are in danger and astronomers are rather upset about the satellites getting into their images. And this is especially problematic for surveys. This is people that look at large areas of the sky like the LSST is going to do, or the Vera Rubin telescope is going to do this year, Uh, look at the entire sky several times a week. Well, in the dusk and and the dawn hours, the twilights of both sides of those of the day, uh, are particularly susceptible to Starlink satellites being reflective because of the geometry of it. And so, what was announced this week was that the uh, National Science Foundation, which is an operator of the in, the in the United States of almost all of the ground-based professional telescopes, um, and SpaceX have reached a, an agreement about uh, th- what they did was uh, the FCC had authorized Star uh, SpaceX to launch something like sixteen thousand satellites. It gave them permission to do that. Well, the National Science Foundation uh, appealed that decision, as did the Dark Sky Association, which we also talked about last week. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the National Science Foundation uh, and the uh, FCC gave the approval to SpaceX on the condition, to launch these extra satellites, on the condition that they work out an agreement with the National Science Foundation. And they've, they've reached that agreement. And the agreement is as follows. SpaceX has agreed to ke- make to take steps necessary to keep their satellites below magnitude seven in terms of reflectivity, whether that means paint or readjustment of solar panels, I don't know, but they, they've agreed to do it. In addition, um, they've also agreed to remove their satellites from a list of satellites that um, when they pass overhead... Ground-based observatories, let me back up. Ground-based observatories in the, around the world have a list of satellites they must consult before they turn on their adaptive optic systems. And they do, they turn the, these systems involve shining a very bright green laser straight overhead so that they can, um, their adaptive optic systems can work. They put, it puts a, a bright star right above them so that they can, their adaptive optic systems can measure the wavefront of the atmosphere and correct for it. That's how adaptive optics systems work. Well, they have to turn that off. They have to consult a list of where they're going to observe every night, and they have to turn it off if a certain satellite is about to pass by so that they don't damage the optics on that satellite. Makes sense. Um, They don't want to mess up, like, say, a ground observing satellite or whatever it is. So they have to consult this list. Well, SpaceX has determined that they don't need to do that. They did before. Which was onerous because there's so many of them and but they determined that those lasers are not going to hurt their satellites, and so they don't need to they 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 don't need to be on the list of things to consult when they fire up their adaptive optic systems so that's, that was the agreement they reached, but the story's not over because the International dark Sky Association uh has also put taken them to court and uh, SpaceX to court. Now, as far as the FCC is concerned, these licenses are okay because the agreement between the National Science Foundation and SpaceX has been reached. They're fine. SpaceX has to go ahead now to build them, deploy more satellites. But the International Dark Sky Association is taking them to court, also appealing uh, appealing that decision by the FCC with a lot more. They, they actually want to um, put a lot more constraints on the, uh, the, the satellites that are launched and, and everything else. And they're basically trying to ba- stop it, uh, stop them from launching more, any more satellites at all, which I don't think is going to work, but it, it is going towards the courts and that's still in progress. So that was one update that came out this week, uh, at the, uh, AAS meeting and the other, and I don't know if I'll go into it too much here. But in our, in our We're Back episode, the one where Dustin and I started talking about, you know, we're back, and one of the first things we talked about was the JWST deep field that it took. And it had found in that deep field just, I think it was like thousands, tens of thousands more galaxies um, than they should have found in the early universe, right? They were these, all these red dots that signified early galaxies. Well, there were a lot of problems with that deep field. The first one was that there were so many galaxies in the early universe, and the second was that they were so highly developed; they were very clear spiral galaxies. And how could that could have ha- how could that could ha- how could that have happened so early in the universe? Well, uh, turns out <laughs> that, the, that the the number of those galaxies is probably going to be cut down dramatically. There simply cannot be that many galaxies at that redshift. Um, at that time in the universe. Otherwise, if there are really that many galaxies that early, we're talking 380 million years after the Big Bang. This is way earlier than what Hubble could see, which was about 500 million years after the Big Bang. So they, so JWST's looked further back, saw way more galaxies than it should have. And that it turns out that JWST can fix this problem, and they are looking into it right now. There's a lot of reasons that a galaxy can appear red. Um, but... All of these redshifts that were reported in that deep field were the result of something called photometric redshift. And basically, all photometric redshift is, is you estimate, you look at a galaxy at a certain filter, red, let's say, and it's really bright in the red, but then you look at it again in green, it's not so bright. You look at it in blue, you can, you can hardly see it at all. So the galaxy, most of the galaxy's wavelengths are coming out of the red filter, it, and at a certain wavelength and running some models and doing some math, they can decide on, it could, they can could estimate a redshift for that. It's called a photometric redshift, and it is notoriously inaccurate because just because something is bright in a given filter doesn't mean that has any indication how far away it is. There's lots of reasons a galaxy can appear red in a filter. Um, or in an image and one, you know, they could have dust in the way between us and that galaxy. All of the blue stars could have already burnt out and died, leaving behind just the red, uh, red dwarfs and the older, the older stars. Um, there's lots of reasons why a galaxy can appear red. So the real value here of JWST and the reason you got your $10 billion worth out of this is that it also has something called NearSpec, which is the near infrared spectrometer it will look at those galaxies and actually get the spectrum measure the actual redshift, which is the actual thing you want and be able to uh, get those numbers. And they are announcing this week that they're in the process of doing that. And already most of those galaxy candidates have been wiped out. They aren't, they aren't really that far back. They're much, they're much, er, much later in the universe, which explains their development and everything else. So, um, I love this stuff. I geek out in January every year. I, I wish I could, I wanted to, they, they haven't had the meeting where you could actually go to it in the last few years. I would love to start going back to these again. I meet a lot of people i I miss seeing and, and going to the talks, but I do kind of nerd out when the press releases that come out every week. So I wanted to share those two things with you.
1: The, yeah, their events are awesome, man, but that's, that's fascinating. Um, you know, I, there's so much space between us and any other galaxy that I think you're right. Like the number of variables is massive of mm-hmm. what could be causing nearly anything that it really does have to be narrowed down in it. with every tool we possibly can. If we're really going to say, we understand this thing, this many billions of light years away, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because it, can be, it could be like anything could be affected by, like you said, dust or any other, you know, um, obstacle. Right, that's in the way of it, Um, and so uh, it—it's fascinating. I had no idea that that had even happened. I I haven't been keeping up with it.
0: Yeah, the the holy grail of of uh, redshift is the spectrum, uh, because that is the theory that Edwin Hubble developed uh, when he first discovered that the galaxies were moving away from us. These certain and they, they tend to look at the molecular hydrogen line but they like to look at a lot of lines in, in the spectrum and measure how far to the red it has actually shifted in the spectrum because that's a direct measurement of the red shift away from the, from us or a blue shift
1: towards us the
0: problem and just is because space blue,
1: something moving towards you would compress the wavelength making it blue and if it's moving away it's going to extend the wavelength pushing it red exactly longer it's wavelength
0: a, yeah, it makes it pulls it into into the red. So the early universe is actually full of stars that shone in the ultraviolet, but by the time that light reached us, it had redshifted all the way out into the infrared. So that's an example of the of the lengthening of the wavelengths. Mm-hmm. But the holy grail has always been this. But space telescopes, Hubble had STIS, which is which is a spectrograph, but it, it was not at, at the wavelengths that needed to be for to make this measurement. So so we it. People who operate space telescopes, in particular, have had to become overly dependent on photometric redshifts. All ground-based observatories have a really good spectrometer on it, but of course they're sitting underneath the atmosphere, and their their measurements are limited uh, by that a lot. So, uh, space telescopes to have a spectrum a spectrograph like what's on JWST in my mind makes it worth. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's worth ten billion. Yeah, it's worth ten billion dollars. I'd pay ten billion dollars for that. <laughs> Because it doesn't do just that. It also measures uh, exoplanet atmospheres. And that's right. another thing they just talked a lot about this this week was all the different planets that they discovered or the candidate planets that JWST has uh, to follow up on. Again, measuring the starlight as it travels through the atmosphere of the exoplanet onto the detector of JWST, that's something we couldn't do before. We could tell two things. If it has an atmosphere and if it does, what it's, what's it made of? And that's huge. That is really huge. So all of these things uh, are happening now uh, for our taxpayer dollars. Yes, it costs as much as an aircraft carrier, but I would trade that aircraft carrier any day for another one of these. So um, anyway, it's an exciting time. And, and JWST, after 40 years, is starting to, uh, <laughs> that's how long it's taken to develop this thing from concept, um, is, is finally starting to show its uh, chops. So... Anyway, there's more to talk about. maybe we'll do that next episode, but should, uh yeah. I mean you
1: mentioned you mentioned so much there that we could <laughs> dig into for months but I, one of the a, things think, one of one of the things that I think would be really fun to talk about would be aOS you know adaptive optics oh yeah um because there's there's even adaptive optics now for like plane waves, things like that so um you know and they're they're I'd claiming a thousand, yeah a thousand hertz correction, so it's uh that's serious that's are they commercially available to people who want a plane wave? Is that what you're saying? Or are they an option talk on a plane next wave? Week? Why don't huh? we talk about it next week? I said, All why right. don't we talk about it next week? All right, we'll do. All right, yeah. folks. It's pretty right, exciting. Well,
0: yeah, this is uh this is a Friday. I'm gonna be posting this on a Wednesday. If you're listening to this now thinking you're gonna get a Radian, nope.
1: <laughs> they might they might still
0: yeah, they might still be available on the site. Right, check it out. Definitely optcorp.com. That's their website. And uh and uh yeah definitely well you could you could order one and then it gets on a, a list right you'll get yeah you'll, the, the
1: next ones are already coming yeah. um but but yeah, yeah it uh it takes a while in between to, the to have the next. one yeah yeah okay yeah radiance popular it's a popular telescope man i mean it's designed specifically for imaging and uh it makes it makes life easy so you know they they generally sell out pretty fast
0: makes life
1: easy it amateur does. astronomers just you guys just don't know how good you
0: have it And my day all right let's stop there all right guys <laughs> all right. thank you so much for listening i'm tony darnell dustin gibson's on the other end we'll see you guys next week thank you for watching slash listening i love you man and as always keep looking up